0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, this country has a long history of weaponizing drug laws against black and brown communities. Harry Anslinger, the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, ran an anti-marijuana crusade in the 1930s, saying, quote, reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men, close quote. Concerns then are justified about what the legalization and profitizing of Marijuana means for the people and communities most harmed by its criminalization. We'll hear about that from Tahid Chappelle, founder of the Philadelphia Canna Business Association and a project manager for Free Press's News Voices project. Also on the show, lots of people are concerned about what's called the digital well being of children, their safety and privacy online. So why did more than 90 human rights and LGBTQ plus groups sign a letter opposing the Kids Online Safety Act? Evan Greer is director of the group Fight for the Future. She'll tell us what's going on there. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As media critics, we encourage people to write letters to the editor, noting that even if your letter doesn't run, it may help another letter with a similar point get in. Because a paper that gets one letter may not feel obliged to represent that view, but if they get 20, they may figure they should run one. All of which is to say the New York Times must have got a boatload of letters scoffing at columnist Ross Douthit's sad sack May 17th piece about how legalizing marijuana is a big mistake, not least because his opposition to it is making people call him a square. Unsurprisingly, Douthit isn't being a principled contrarian, just obfuscating. As noted by Paul from Washington and Jeff from Queens and Peter from Boston, he sidesteps comparative mention of legal drugs like alcohol or tobacco and dismisses decades of society-wide harms of racist enforcement of anti-marijuana legislation by saying... Cops who used weed as a pretense to stop and frisk Black people will just find other reasons. So, so much for that. For the Times columnist, it all comes down to the wicked weed as personal degradation, which in 2023... Sales like a lead balloon. There is an informed good faith conversation to be had about the impacts of marijuana legalization, and especially the effort to see some of the benefits of this newly legal market in some places go to those most harmed by its illegality. Our guest works on precisely these intersections. Tahid Chappelle is a founder of the Philadelphia Canna Business Association and also a project manager for Free Press's News Voices Project, focusing on that program's Philadelphia initiative to reimagine how local newsrooms approach coverage of crime violence, and the criminal justice and carceral systems. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Tahid Chappelle.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Douthat's column was headlined, Call Me Square, but facts show the error of legalizing weed, which, okay, the invocation of facts is a rhetorical device. You all are vibing, but I'm a grown-up who only traffics in facts. Uh, it's a frankly, boring tactic that people use to discount the humanity of others and think they're doing something. But, you know, I love a good fact as much as the next guy. So in terms of public opinion, in terms of reported social harms, in terms of the information that we do have, would an observer say that marijuana legalization where it has happened has been a big, dangerous mistake?
1: Um, no. In fact, I, I'm happy to say that because legalization for both medical and adult use legalization has been around, especially on the West Coast in places like Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and California, we are now starting to see the long-term studies of the impact of legalization. There has been a fear that teen use is going to go up. That's been debunked by the studies on these various states over the last decade of legalization. There's been fear about higher road rage or higher traffic accidents due to being quote unquote under the influence of cannabis. That's also been debunked. There's been ongoing fear about marijuana use being some sort of gateway into harder drugs. That has been debunked. And we've also seen a decrease in opioid use in states that have legalized cannabis for medical use as well. And so there has been a lot of reaper madness that continues to point at unscientific, non-peer-reviewed data that does not actually support the ongoing fears that people continue to fearmonger across the country. We have a plethora of data, a plethora of government-backed studies as well to show that the legalization of marijuana has been nothing but a net positive overall.
0: Well, let me ask you another side of of information. Are people still being arrested for marijuana possession, because media would tell me that it's all the Wild West. And that's why we might think about putting the genie back in the bottle. But it's not exactly the case.
1: Yeah. In states such as like New Jersey, and even, you know, we're pulling some data from the West Coast because they've legalized longer as well. We have seen an overall decrease in arrests for Cannabis possession. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that Black people are not still being disproportionately targeted for cannabis. We are still seeing that across the country. In fact, the ACLU did a wonderful report that shows that incarceration, especially for Black Americans, still has not significantly decreased despite legalization of marijuana. And an example of this is in Pennsylvania, where medical marijuana is legal. However, if you are not a medical marijuana registered patient in the state and you're not in a city like Philadelphia or Harrisburg or Pittsburgh, which has decriminalized cannabis possession, if you are caught with marijuana with you and you're not a medical marijuana patient, you still could be criminalized and potentially incarcerated from police if you step out of those decriminalization areas. So that's to say, yes, overall, we are seeing a positive decrease in arrests, but that does not mean that black people are still not being disproportionately targeted for marijuana use or possession.
0: Well, I know that you have a Philadelphia focus. Are there things that are happening right there that are emblematic that you think point to larger issues? What's going on in Philadelphia that you think is useful to think about?
1: We've noticed that municipalities ultimately, when it comes to cannabis legalization, the state will create usually sometimes broad categories of how the cannabis market should be rolled out. But municipalities at the very local level determine what types of cannabis businesses they can allow in their cities, Mm -hmm. right? They have zoning ordinances, they have permits, they have specific locations that businesses can and can't operate and so something that I encourage everybody, especially those that are interested in getting into the industry, is to start educating your council members, your county commissioners, because this is something that's completely new to them. Many of them have never been exposed to marijuana as a legal business. Many of us have gone through decades and generations of marijuana as a harmful drug, it's a narcotic. And so to see this become legalized where there are actual business and economic considerations Many people, especially lawmakers and politicians, still don't have enough information to make the best decisions on how to make an accessible and equitable and friendly cannabis market where people can be participants without the fear of any sort of retribution or incarceration. So education, education, education. We, well, I, you know, Philadelphia specifically, we had a, just the a big primary where um, we are going to have a new mayor coming up this year that means more education for them because they may be the mayor that has to oversee legalization in their city. They're going to have to figure out what types of cannabis businesses they're going to want to allow in Philadelphia. Who should have those licenses to operate and where should they be able to operate? And what types of support should they be receiving? So municipality to municipality, you have varying levels. Of education, people. Some mayors embrace legalization. They're they're excited for it. They want to see the the financial returns of these new businesses. Others are very much NIMBY. Not in my backyard. They're still afraid of it. They still think it's going to create a drug market in their backyard. And so we have a lot of level setting to do at the local level.
0: Well, let me ask you finally about. Journalism a million years ago, except it was actually January 2018. Um, I talked with Art Way from Drug Policy Alliance, and this is at a moment where Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, was saying, "quote Good people don't smoke marijuana." Close quote. And we had a Kansas State Representative Steve Alford who said in 2018 not 1918, said that we need to remember why marijuana was outlawed, which was because, quote, African-Americans, they were basically users and they basically responded the worst off to those drugs just because of their character makeup, their genetics, and that, close quote. So there's a, obviously a opinion shift, a culture shift happening, but in terms of media, What would you like to see? New questions asked, new ways of approach. What would you like to see in terms of media coverage of the issue?
1: There are three people that I like to point to as really good examples of good reporters asking tough questions, Mm -hmm. holding politicians accountable, calling out agencies that are supposed to be doing the job of rolling out legalization, but have not. One of them, the former Boston. Uh, Globe journalist Dan Adams, who covered the Massachusetts legalization for years, great reporter. Jelani Gibson, who was the first Black reporter in a traditional newspaper to cover cannabis, he works for NJ.com. He holds the state accountable, asking a lot of politicians, asking a lot of regulators questions about expectations, realities, what the law has been said and what has actually happened pertaining to the law. And then from a national perspective, Mona Zhang from Politico does a great job in analyzing how different governments are trying to address the ongoing inequities that we see in cannabis legalization. And I think that continues to be a point that we need to emphasize is that despite legalization, the people who have been harmed the most are either still locked up or being released but not being supported into the reentry of society. And they're not able to still be able to benefit from the true legalization, which is being able to legally run their own cannabis operation and be supported in that, too. So I would love to see more media reporting on the ongoing inequities and the solutions that other municipalities and states are trying to do to rectify the situation. I think more awareness of that is going to lead to a lot more, I guess, inspiration for cannabis advocates and stakeholders to bring these solutions to their lawmakers and politicians in their respective localities.
0: All right. Well, I suspect we'll speak with you more in the future. Taheed Chappelle is founder of the Philadelphia Canna Business Association, as well as a project manager for Free Press. Thank you so much, Taheed Chappelle, for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thanks for having me. Appreciate everything that you do. Truly an honor to be included
2: in this interview.
0: Louisiana just banned abortion at six weeks before many people even know they're pregnant, while also saying 16-year-old girls are mature enough to marry. Arkansas says there's no need for employers to check the age of workers they hire. As one state legislator put it, there's no reason why anyone should get the government's permission to get a job. And Wisconsin says 14 year olds, sure, can serve alcohol. Iowa says they can shift loads in freezers and meat coolers. Simultaneously, and in the same country, we have a raft of legislation saying that young people should not be in charge of what they look at online. Bone saws cool, TikTok bad. The way this country thinks about young people is odd, you could say. Incoherent would be another word. When it comes to the online stuff, there seem to be some good intentions at work. Anyone who's been on the Internet can see how it can be manipulative and creepy. But are laws like the Kids' Online Safety Act the appropriate way to address those concerns? We'll talk about that now with Evan Greer, director of the group Fight for the Future. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Evan Greer.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Always happy to chat.
0: Well, let's start specifically with COSA, with the um, Kids Online Safety Act, because it's a real piece of legislation. And there are things that you and other folks are not disputing, that big tech companies do have practices that are bad for kids and especially bad for some vulnerable kids. But the method of addressing those concerns is the question. What would COSA do that people may not understand in terms of the impact on ostensibly those young people we were told that they care about?
2: Yeah, and I think it's so important that we do start from the acknowledgment that big tech companies are doing harm to our kids because it's just not acceptable to pretend otherwise. There is significant evidence to suggest that these very large corporations are engaging in business practices that are fundamentally incompatible with human rights, with democracy, but also with what we know young people and really everyone needs which is access to online information and community, rather than having their data harvested and information shoved down their throat in a way that enriches companies rather than empowering young people and adults. Um, And so when we look at this problem, I think it is important that we start there because there is a real problem. And the folks pushing this legislation often like to characterize those of us that oppose it as big tech shills or whatever. It's hard for me not to laugh at that, given that I've dedicated the better part of my adult life to confronting these big tech companies and their surveillance capitalist business model and working to dismantle it. But I think it's important that we say very clearly that we oppose these bills not because We think that they are an inappropriate trade off between human rights and children's safety. We oppose these bills because they will make children less safe, Mm -hmm. not more safe. And it's so important that we make that clear because we know from history that politicians love to put in the wrapping paper of protecting children any type of legislation or regulation that they would like to advance and avoid political opposition to. It is, of course, very difficult for any elected official to speak out against or vote against a bill called the Kids Online Safety Act, regardless of whether that bill actually makes kids safer online or not. And so what I'm here to explain a bit is why this legislation will actually make kids less safe. And it's important to understand a few things. So one is that COSA is not just a bill that focuses on privacy or ending the collection of children's data. It's a bill that gives the government control over what content platforms can recommend to which users. And this is, again, kind of well-intentioned, trying to address a real problem, which is that because platforms like Instagram and YouTube employ this surveillance advertising and surveillance capitalist business model, they have a huge incentive to algorithmically recommend content in a way that's maximized for engagement Mm -hmm. rather than in a way that is curated or attempting to promote helpful content. Their algorithms are designed to make them money. And so because of that, we know that platform's often algorithmically recommend all kinds of content, including content that can be incredibly harmful. That's the legitimate problem that this bill is trying to solve. But unfortunately, it would actually make that problem worse. And the way it would do that is it creates what's called a broad duty of care that requires platforms to design their algorithmic recommendation systems in a way that has the best interest of children in mind, And it kind of specifies what they mean by that in terms of tying it to specific mental health outcomes like eating disorders or substance abuse or anxiety or depression. And basically says that platforms should not be recommending content that causes those types of disorders. Now, if you're sticking with me, all of that sounds perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we want to do that? The problem is that the bill gives the authority to determine and enforce that to state attorneys general. And if you've been paying attention at all to what's happening in the states right now, you would know that state attorneys general across the country, in red states particularly, are actively arguing right now today that simply encountering LGBTQ people makes kids depressed, causes them to be suicidal, gives them mental health disorders. They are arguing that providing young people with gender-affirming care that's medically recommended and where there is medical consensus is a form of child abuse. And so while this bill sounds perfectly reasonable on its face, it utterly fails to recognize the political moment that we're in. And rather than making kids safer, what it would do is empower the most bigoted attorneys general, law enforcement officers in the country, to dictate what content young people can see in their feed. And that would lead to widespread suppression, not just of LGBTQ content or content related to perhaps abortion and reproductive health, but really suppression of important but controversial topics across the board. So for example, the bill's backers envision a world where this bill leads to less promotion of content that promotes eating disorders. In reality, the way that this bill would work it would just suppress all discussion of eating disorders among young people. Because at scale, a platform like YouTube or Instagram are not going to be able to make a meaningful determination between, for example, a video that's harmful and promoting eating disorders or a video where a young person is just speaking about their experience with an eating disorder and how they sought out help and support and how other young people can do it too. In practice, These platforms are simply going to use AI, as they've already been doing, more aggressively to filter content. That's the only way that they could meaningfully comply with a bill like COSA. And what we'll see is exactly what we saw with Mm SESTA-FOSTA, which was the last major change to Section 230, a very similar bill that was intended to address a real problem, online sex trafficking, that actually made it harder for law enforcement to prosecute actual cases of sex trafficking while having a detrimental effect for consensual sex workers who effectively had online spaces that they used to keep themselves safe, to screen clients, to find work in ways that were safer for them, shut down almost overnight because of this misguided legislation that was supposed to make them safer. And so we're now in a moment where we could actually see the same happen not just for content related to sex and sexuality, but for an enormous range of incredibly important content that our young people actually need access to. This is cutting young people off from life-saving information and online community, rather than giving them what they need, which is resources, support, housing, healthcare. Those are the types of things that we know prevent things like child exploitation, but unfortunately, lawmakers seem more interested in trampling the First Amendment and putting the government in charge of what content can be recommended than in addressing those material conditions that we actually have evidence to suggest if we could address them would reduce the types of harms that lawmakers say they're trying to reduce.
0: Well, thank you. And I just wanted to say I'm getting reefer madness vibes, you know, and a conflation of correlation and causality. And I see in a lot of the talk around this, people pointing to research. Social media use drives mental illness. So I just want to ask you briefly, there is research, but what does the research actually say or not say on these questions?
2: It's a great question. And there's been some news on this fairly recently. There was a report out from the Surgeon General of the United States um, a couple of weeks ago. And it is interesting because As you said, there is research, and what the research says is basically it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, our mainstream news outlets and politicians giving speeches don't do very well with complicated. Mm -hmm. And so, what you saw is a lot of headlines that basically said social media is bad for kids. And the research certainly backs that up to a certain extent. There is significant and growing evidence to suggest that, again, these types of predatory design practices that companies put into place, things like autoplay, where you just play a video and then the next one plays, or infinite scroll, where you can just keep scrolling through TikToks forever and ever, and suddenly an hour has passed and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Um, you know, There is significant evidence that those types of design choices do have negative mental health effects for young people and adults and that they can lead to addictive behaviors, to anxiety, et cetera. There's also evidence in that report that was largely ignored by a lot of the coverage of it that showed that for some groups of young people, including LGBTQ young people, there's actually significant evidence to suggest that access to social media improves their mental health. And it's not that hard to understand why. Anyone who knows, a queer or trans young person knows, online spaces can provide a safe haven, can provide a place to access uh, community or resources or information, especially for young people who perhaps have unsupported family members or live in an area where they don't have access to in-person community in a safe way. This can be a lifeline. And so, again, there is research out there, and it is important that we build our regulatory and legislative responses on top of actual evidence rather than kind of conjecture and hyperbole. But again, I think what's important here is that we embrace the both and and recognize that this is not about saying social media is totally fine as it is and like leave these companies alone and we can all live in a cyber libertarian paradise. (laughs) That's not the world we're living in. Mm -hmm. These companies are big, they are greedy, they are engaging in business practices that are doing harm, and they should be regulated. But what we need to focus on is regulating The surveillance capitalist business model that's at the root of their harm, rather than attempting to regulate the speech of young people, suppress their ability to express themselves, and take away life-saving resources that they need in order to thrive and succeed in this deeply unjust and messed up world that we are handing to them.
0: All right, then. We've been speaking with Evan Greer. She's director of Fight for the Future. They're online at fightforthefuture.org. Evan Greer, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
2: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's it for a Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. That's also the place to show support for a Counterspin if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.